As uh, Brandon was uh, saying, thanks so much to all of you who um, helped make the summit possible, the, uh, all the folks that loaned cars. I hope you get all your cars back. Uh, anything's left here, we're going to auction off and get to the church. Um, but that, that's a pretty big deal for most of us. We're driving all the time. And so thank you for sharing your cars. Those who opened your homes for two weeks, uh, it's amazing. Um, for those who helped serve meals, all the coordinators that we had who uh, organized the host homes, the loaner cars, the meals, um, childcare. Thank you if you did childcare. I'm just interested. Would you stand to your feet if you did childcare at all during the summit? Stand to your feet. It must have all been in the first service. Hey. There we go. Thank you so much. I think we had over 100 volunteers and I remember talking to Brooke the week before. We're like, we're not there yet. She's like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. She's an optimist anyway. But uh, it was amazing to see. Brooke just shook her head. She said, I saw people serving in the nursery. I never saw before uh, serving nursery. Kyle would be one. And uh, Charlie might have been his second time or so. Um, it's not true. All the staff were not serving in nursery. I wasn't in that day. Just, just saying. But we're so grateful for everybody that really... Um, stood in the gap in many ways, and giving. Uh, in case you didn't hear, the final number that we gave to Life Action that you gave was uh, around $40,000. And uh, they were asking for, their, yeah, yeah, amen. So 28,000 is their weekly needs. A contract that we give them up front is 4,000. And they just said, when we looked at that number, like, that's not going to happen. And like, God always provides what we need. God always provides what we need. And so thank you for your kindness and generosity. Uh, Greg told me before he left, he said, you have the distinction of being the church that in my six years with Life Action has given the largest sum of money to Life Action. That's amazing because we're not the near the largest church that they've been in. So thank you for um, being kind and prompting, uh, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit in that. One of the things that they encouraged us to do was um, to revisit some of the themes. Um, and so we're going to do that this week and next week as well. We're going to look at pride today and, and forgiveness next Sunday. <clears throat> and uh, one of the interesting conversations I had just a little while ago between services, we were talking about um, the, the way the summit went and how effective it was. And um, we joke... Um, sort of joke sometimes when we have um, sound problems or other kind of glitches in the service, um, the, the enemy having his way. And uh, this person was saying, we didn't have any of that. And I said, but don't forget, we had a lot of intensive prayer coming into that summit for months and months. And that's a good reminder that we, if we stay, listen, if we stay on our knees, there's no transformation that's not possible. If we stay on our knees, there's no, there's no change. There's no uh, whatever it is that we desire that's not possible. And conversely, when we are off of our knees, and I'm not talking about praying on your knees necessarily. I'm just talking about prayer. That prayer is the, it's what, um, it's what unleashes God's grace among us. And so I want to encourage you. Keep praying. Now that the summit's over, don't, don't stop praying for God's 
Holy Spirit to work uh, in and among us. I pray that that will continue to be the case. So we want to talk about pride today. And this is an important, important thing to talk about. I, I think the conversations that I have had with people in the wake of the summit, uh, pride's the number one thing that surfaces where people say, wow, I was really, uh, really heard God speak to me about pride. Second most frequent is uh, forgiveness. But pride is, uh, pride is so um, rooted in all of, really all of our living. Um, it, it, uh, Augustine used to say that pride is the queen of vices. And it's not just the biggest deal. It, it's the, it's, it's, if you scratch down deep enough, I often say this, in any sin, beneath any sin, you're usually going to find pride. Whether that's anger or lust or gossip, you'll usually find pride at the bottom um, being the root. Now, fundamentally, pride is all about me first. And there are some people in which we can see it very readily. And we're like, oh, that, that guy's got a problem. That woman's got a problem. Kind of like this guy. Are there any other honors I've gotten that I don't know about? Did UPS drop off a Nobel Prize with my name on it? Leonard, please don't take this the wrong way, but the day you win a Nobel Prize is the day I begin my research on the drag coefficient of tassels on flying carpets. Sheldon, we have to do this. No, we don't. We have to take in nourishment, expel waste, and inhale enough oxygen to keep our cells from dying. Everything else is optional. Okay, let me put it this way. I'm doing it. You can't. I'm the lead author. Come on, the only reason you're the lead author is because we went alphabetically. I let you think we went alphabetically to spare you the humiliation of dealing with the fact that it was my idea. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I was throwing you a bone. You're welcome. Excuse me, I designed the experiment to prove the hypothesis. It doesn't need proving. What? So the entire scientific community is just supposed to take your word? They're not supposed to, but they should. All right, I don't care what you say. I'm going to the conference and I'm presenting our findings. And I forbid it. You forbid it? If I'm not taking credit for our work, then nobody is. So you admit that it's our work? No, once again, I'm throwing you a bone. <laughs> and once again, you are welcome. You look at a guy like that and say, yeah, that guy's got a pride problem, right? But me, on the other hand, that's a different story. So the night when Greg spoke on pride here, we went through this exercise here at the back of the book. And uh, if you remember, he, you know, we kind of started it and then he had prayer and dismissed us and some stayed and some didn't. We kept working on this book. And I, I remember that I am going down through the first one, two, three, and I thought, yeah, I know how to answer those. And I get to four, not so sure, five, not so sure, six. I thought, you know what? I don't really trust myself. I better get Betty to help me. And so I told her, I said, uh, when we get home tonight, let's sit down and I'd like to go through this, uh, uh, this book with you. And that was probably a mistake. <laughs> because as we got down, so I said, I think I got the first three. Let's just look at four, five, six. And we kind of went on and look at four. And, and she kind of, she gave the wrong answers a lot. <laughs> and by the time we were all said and done, I'm like, Oh, my goodness, that's not very good. Now, I did disagree with her on a couple of occasions. I insisted on putting the check mark somewhere between proud person and broken person uh, just to kind of save face a little bit, more of my pride coming into play. 
But one of the things that I think, and we look at somebody like uh, Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory, and like everybody knows he's, he's, he comes off just very arrogant, very cocky, very proud. And I don't, I don't really care what you think about his politics, but President Trump is not going to win any awards anytime soon about being humble. I mean, we look at people certain, we look at people that are kind of all out there, the, like the hyper narcissists, and we're like, they're proud, I'm not. And there's a reason that the title of my message today is a ghost named pride. Pride loves to stay in the shadows, and it, it's difficult to drag it out. It's going to come out only kicking and screaming because it very, very much wants to stay hidden because most of the things that reveal our pride don't actually reveal our pride. We think there's another issue in play. Maybe it's anger, or maybe it's a grudge, or maybe it's lying, or maybe it's um, being fashion conscious, or maybe it's trying to get the whole truth, you name it. How many times pride is what is really down beneath it all. And so um, let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about and the answer is probably always going to be pride. So if you think that's the case, you can answer that with me out loud. So the last time you got a traffic ticket, one of two things probably happened. One, you didn't tell anybody about it. There we go, thank you, pride. Or you told everybody about it and explained why it was unjust. There we go. Um, so this is especially geared to the men. Um, you won't ask for help because of women. Any of you have that problem? None. Okay. So why did I get, uh, I hope to be, this is the case. Why did I used to get mad when Betty beat me? I, uh, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> not that kind not that kind of beating. Settlers. So it's just the two of us playing. There's nobody else around impressed. But why did I get mad when she would win? Right. Why would a wife get defensive when her husband urges her, honey, you really need to be more consistent in correcting the kids? A little louder? Okay. It can be men too. That could be dangerous. Okay, here we go. Husbands, why a husband won't admit he's wrong. No male voices in that at all. Isn't that interesting? Uh, young lady spends lavish sums of money on clothes or a young man buys a car he can't possibly afford. Pride. Um, here's one. You have a brother or sister in Christ who is stuck in sin but you won't confront him or her because of, isn't that interesting? Here's one, you have uh, no unrepentant sin in your life, but you are constantly doubting your salvation. Pride. Um, if I'm embarrassed that you know something unflattering about me, it's because of pride. Say it with me. Pride. Let's see, see if you're tracking with me. All right. A dad won't ask his daughter's forgiveness 
for jumping to the wrong conclusion when he comes into a sibling battle. What's going on there? Right. What if you think that God's calling you to be an elder in the church, but you won't mention it to anybody, despite the fact that the scripture says, if anyone aspires to be an elder, he desires a noble task. What would keep him from that? That's pride too. You see what I'm, saying, what I'm talking about when I say pride is hidden in the shadows so much? We would think that would be humility. A man wouldn't want to wouldn't say, I feel called to be an elder. You'd think that'd be humility. What's going on? He doesn't want anyone to think he's proud. And if he says he thinks he's being called, isn't that pride? I wonder how many, how many instances of pride are in our lives simply because of how we've been taught. The things that we've been trained to be and not be. To say and to not say. And so this morning, we're going to look at a couple of verses, some things Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 11. And then we'll talk about uh, how Jesus can, can help us in this area. Let me pray for us before we go on. Father, uh, pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us today in ways that will, one, drag our pride out into the open. And two, convey to us the great hope that you offer us in dealing with this masterful scheming, often hidden, master. And I pray against the enemy who hates you, he hates us, he hates our desire to serve you and to please you. Pray that you would bind him, silence him this morning. And that the word of God might have its impact by the power of the Spirit of God in my life and all of our lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse 25. And throughout this chapter, Jesus has been trying to make a case for people following him. He's explained to them his identity, who he is. He's explained to, him, to them where he's come from, who sent him. He's explained uh, to them what it might look like if they're going to follow him. And he gets down to verse 25 and he begins to pray. He says, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever. He might just as well have said those who are proud. And for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, as Greg said, humility is a journey. It is not a destination that we're going to reach until we die, until we are glorified, leave this life. 
And so whatever, whatever steps God has, has you on at this point or might send you on in the future, uh, know that and don't get discouraged by the fact that you're still in process. I'm still in process. We're still on the way. Um, so closing in on humility is not just about trying harder, but about chasing grace. In other words, uh, this is not something we just kind of muscle, muscle up and knock it out of the park. This is something that we need to seek God to help us. In other words, awareness is the first step, and then seeking his help to address it is the second step. So two things I want to take out of this passage. One is learning from Jesus. That is that Jesus is our humble example. And then two, resting in Jesus. That is that, excuse me, that humility in, in the spiritual realm comes from resting in Jesus um, from beginning to end when it comes to our salvation. Let's talk about him as our example. Jesus says in verse 25, as he talks, uh, reflects on the things that he has been saying to people, urging them to come and follow him. He says, I thank you for hiding these things, Father, from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Jesus is always calling people to be childlike learners before him, childlike learners from him. It's interesting that the word uh, uh, about learn here in, this, in the text, the word learn is a word that's very close to the word disciple. And so he's talking about learning to be a follower of, of Jesus. It needs to be childlike. How many times have you or maybe somebody you've talked to about Jesus approached the gospel as if it's this very complex, very intricate, very involved, very confusing thing? And there was a reason that the Pharisees, who, the, who were the guys who had their masters and, and doctorate degrees in theology, there was a reason that these guys, by and large, turned their backs on Jesus. This, the simple gospel wasn't good enough for them. They, they wanted to be able to, to flesh out all the nuances and say, well, but are you really talking about this Jesus? Are you just talking about these kind of people here? And Jesus is like, it's, it's very simple. Kind of saying yes to God. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks. It's just kind of saying yes to God. And if you like complexity, that's going to be a problem for you. In part, because saying yes is a very simple thing. And how many times has God convicted you? I'm here. How many times has God convicted you of something and you end up rationalizing away any, any chance of turning and going another direction? It's like, ah, it wasn't... God didn't really mean that, or I, I probably just imagined I heard him, or that piece in my life is really not that big of a deal. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says, if you're going to come to me, you have to do it in a childlike way, right? And that's what he said in Luke 18, 17. If you want to come and follow me, you look at these children around here. These are the kinds of attitudes that you should have if you come to me. They don't have a lot of questions. They don't have a lot of clarifications. They don't have a lot of, but what ifs, Jesus? They just say yes. And Jesus says, this kind of, these are the kind of people that are going to follow me. Now, again, this is a reason that not everybody that you talk to about Jesus is going to be really responsive. 
And some of you have had conversations with folks about the Lord that have, they've asked a thousand questions and you can tell it's not that they're really interested. They're just trying to throw you off track. They're just trying to distract you and divert you. And so don't, if you sit with somebody and talk to them about Christ, don't get discouraged if they're not all in, if they're not all receptive. Only the childlike are ultimately going to say yes, because everybody else has a different agenda. Everybody else is a yes, but well, what if, and all of these kinds of reservations. And bottom line is, we just don't want to say yes. It's the childlike who are the learners. And the teacher is humble and gentle. Verse 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. Humble, <coughs> excuse me, and gentle at heart. He's our example. Now, sometimes humility has a, a um, maybe in our minds what that really is, is not what it really is. Here's a great definition. Humility is the ability to act ashamed when you tell people how wonderful you are. Humility is the ability to tell uh, act of shame when you tell people how wonderful you are. I would like to give an illustration um, that somebody gave me between services, but I'm afraid I will reveal the individual. Um, so let's just do it this way. So she talked about some success she had, and, uh, and it was a very great, it was a great accomplishment. And then her response was, and I have no idea how I did it. Now, there's... Two ways that works in her behalf. On the one, she shows that she, uh, she beat everybody else. And two, it makes her look humble. Right? I don't know how I did it. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the skill. I, you see what I'm saying? That we say things like that. And, and I'm listening to her say this. And I'm thinking, oh, Wow. I can think of five ways instantly that I've done that with people. You know, you just kind of, you package the self-compliment in such a way that it comes off like, wow, he's a really humble guy. I hate myself for that. And I'll do it again next week. Why? Because pride does not let Go easily. And yet you look at Jesus' life and how, how often did you find Jesus in the four gospel accounts defending himself, promoting himself. And somebody said something bad to him and he had a great comeback to put them in their place. It's just not there. Why? He didn't have anything to prove. He didn't have anybody that he had to convince of something about him. I can't let you think that way about me. Jesus says, yeah, you, you can. I can't let you tell somebody else that about me that's wrong. Yeah, Jesus said, I'm okay with that. He didn't have anything to prove. Why? Because his, he was, his father, he knew his father was happy with him. He knew his father knew the truth about him. That was enough. It says here in the text that Jesus says, I'm lowly in heart. Now, the tendency is to read that through our 1990s, 2000s self-esteem culture. 
But Jesus was not talking about self-image here. He was talking about self-position. Because humility is putting God first, putting others second, and putting me last. Humility is putting God first, putting others second, and me last. And that, that's true in pretty much every area of my life. When you think about how you're going to spend your time, let, let's, let, let's just get our work hours out of the way and the stuff that we have planned with our families, the, the spare time. When I look at my spare time, and this is deeply convicting to me because I'm not here, do I put God first in my spare time and others second in my spare time and me last? When it comes to my money, do I put God first in my money and others second in my money and me last? If God would have prompted me to give uh, to somebody this week $200, would I get, out with, get it out without a complaint or would I say, well, God, I mean, I have, we're saving up for this trip and... Um, you know, I kind of put that wrinkle in my car that I wasn't really planning on paying for, but now I have to pay for that. And, and this is not, God, this is just not a good time. God first, others second, me last. Humility, my money, my time, how I serve, how I promote, how I use my money, how I use my time. I, and I don't toot my own horn. So here's some of the questions from this inventory that we took. Self, a broken person is one who is self-denying. A proud person is someone who is protective of their time, their rights, their reputation. Mm. Number 13. A broken person is one who has this heart attitude. I don't deserve to have a part in any ministry. I know I've done nothing to, uh, I've got nothing to offer God except the life of Jesus flowing through my broken life. Or a proud person. Subconsciously feel this ministry or this church is privileged to have me and my gifts. Think of what I can do for God. By the way, if you think pastors don't wrestle with that, you are radically mistaken. Number 15, the broken person is not concerned with self at all. But the proud person is self-conscious. I worry about what I wear when I go out in public. Why? Because I want people to draw a particular conclusion about me. I worry about what I say and how I say it. Why? Because I want people to draw certain conclusions about me. I'm careful about the things I don't say because I want people to draw certain conclusions about me. Are, are you tracking with any of this? I'm, I'm preoccupied with your impression of me. And that surfaces in our jobs because after all that makes a difference how much money we make. That makes a difference on how likely we are to get promoted. 
It surfaces in our marriages. I have to be right. Why? Well, it might just be because I have to be right, but more likely it's because I have to prove to my spouse that I'm right. And so that they will, in part, they will admire me and know the next time not to disagree with me. Why? Because I'm, I'm right. It surfaces, in, it surfaces in training our children. I'm self-conscious about what my child thinks about me. That's why I can't go to him or her and say, please forgive me. I totally screwed up. What will they think about me? Will they listen to me? Will they obey me from now on? If, if they see that I acknowledge that I messed up, what are the chances that they're going to listen to me? I mean, you, do you see what, I, see what they're saying? Pride surfaces in wanting to be perceived in a certain way, and I'm very self-conscious about that, making sure that I get perceived in a certain way. We could go on and on that. We won't. For now, simply to remind us that Jesus was the great example of what humility looks like and what pride doesn't look like. The last point under this learning from Jesus is that he is teaching us to trust him and only him. And that leads us into the next point. Verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. He's talking about spiritual pride here. Take my yoke upon you, and let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But Jesus is basically saying, if you learn from me, you're going to find rest for your souls. If you will humble yourself, you will find rest for your souls. He's speaking about what we think we bring to the table to please God. Now, we've talked about this many, many times, and this is a problem that transcends culture. It transcends race. It transcends socioeconomic background. It transcends the place you were um, raised and the home environment you had. It transcends the kind of family you had. And that is when it comes to religion, and I'm going to use that to uh, speak about not just Christianity, but all kinds of faiths. When it comes to religion, I want so very much to contribute something. I want so very much to contribute something. How many times do we even teach people, um, we're not going to give you um, a handout, we're going to give you part of what you need, and we, we want you to find a way to come up with the rest of the money. Because we want to teach people to take responsibility. A lot of good in that. But that kind of thinking rolls right over into our faith and we think we want to bring something to the table. We want to provide something. We, we want to contribute something. And some of us have gone through our entire Christian life either convinced that we have brought something to the table or fearful that we haven't brought enough to the table. And Jesus never quite gets it done for us. He started the work on Calvary, but now we have to finish it. And don't, 
don't those words sound wonderful? That Jesus says, if you come to me, you can have rest for your souls. I wonder how many of us are going through our Christian lives miserable, miserable because we cannot simply take Jesus at his word. We have to add this. If we don't, we're not saved or we might not be quite saved. I have to do this. I have to stop doing that or I'm not saved because Jesus isn't enough. And Jesus is saying, I've I've got rest for you. All you have to do is take it. It's yours in me. Now, it's interesting, though, despite this rest, he's talking about an implement here that sounds like we do have a bunch of work to do. He talks about a yoke. You know what a yoke is? No, not the thing in the egg. No, not that yoke. In an agrarian culture, ancient Middle East, this would have been the case. So there's a wooden bar, pretty long, that has curves notched out on either side for the oxen. That bar goes across the top of the shoulders of the oxen, and then there's a loop uh, around beneath the yoke, uh, uh, beneath the bar, to make sure that it doesn't slip off the head of the oxen. What's interesting, I never saw this before. I was reading a commentary this week by David Platt on this passage, and he made a statement that absolutely blew me away. He said, Jesus is in the yoke with us. I'm like, wait, what? If you've ever seen a picture of two oxen in a yoke, in almost every situation, it's not an ox, it's two. They have the yoke over their shoulders, and then there's something, some rope or strap going back to the plow, pulling it along, getting the work done. Take my yoke upon you. How am I going to have rest if I'm the only one pulling? But if Jesus is in the yoke with me, now I can rest because I know we're going to have success plowing that field. God designed Jesus' work so that Jesus could say when he breathed his last breath on the cross, it is almost done. No, Chuck? It is finished. Hallelujah. That's where rest comes from. It doesn't come from you completing some sort of action. Your response and my response to say yes. And so we can then have rest from impressing God. You ever feel guilty when you sing that song, Jesus paid it all? (laughs) You want to just sing, Jesus paid for most of it? No more impressing God. Our response of obedience is not now trying to score points with God, but because we are so grateful for what Jesus has done on the cross for us. But what can we do but dedicate the rest of our lives to him? What can we do but say yes to him instead of no or maybe? 
What can we do but say to him, here am I, Lord, send me. I'm so grateful for what you did. I'm not trying to finish anything, God. I'm just acting in obedience because of what you've done for me. We are not safe in Christ just on our good days and then cast out on our bad days. Because I may waver, but he never will. This is the reason that Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we are saved by grace through faith, and this a gift not of itself, lest anyone should what? Boast. God has designed salvation so that no one can approach his throne with a bag of goodies that we've accomplished and say, here, what do you think of that? There is rest from trying to impress God, and there is a rest from trying to impress people. Why is it you get angry? Why is it that you get angry with your boss or with one of your employees? Why is it that you get angry with your husband or your wife? Why is it that you get angry with your children? Part of it is pride. You want them to be impressed with you, and they're not right now, and you have to convince them to be impressed. Why is it that we hold grudges against people? Because they haven't recognized our great worth, our great goodness, our great honesty, our great integrity, our great worth of admiration. And we're ticked off at them about that. You look about anything that we, any problem that we have in a relationship with somebody else. And it's so much about pride, so much about impressing people. Why is it that we need people to view us as successful? Why is it that we need to get people to admire us and our family? <laughs> when I was working this sermon, I thought, oh yeah, it's time for Christmas cards. And isn't it true of the stuff we like to write on the Christmas cards about the family, how well we're doing? And we try to make the photo shoot for the family, make sure little Johnny doesn't have his finger up his nose or something gross like that, because we want to convey this idyllic picture of our family. We're awesome. Shining up the halo up here to try to get people to believe how wonderful and good we are and how amazing and remarkable we are. And we pray for the summit because there are a lot of people out here in this body that need Jesus and his work in their lives. Not me, but I'm praying for you. And the bottom line is we want people's, we want to impress people with ourselves because, listen, Jesus' approval is not enough. At the end of the day, we need, I need your approval, I need your applause, I need your acclaim in my life because Jesus' approval is not enough. And Jesus knows all about who I am. He knows every wart, he knows every flaw, he knows every imperfection. And he still loves me. And that should be enough. And that should be enough. Open your bulletin. And inside there are two copies of the inventory 
that were given that night that Greg spoke his message, uh, gave his message on pride. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you were not here for that message, I want you to go home and fill this out. And if you're married, ask your husband or your wife to help you fill it out. I'll just warn you ahead of time, they're going to get some of the answers wrong. And you can negotiate if you want, or you can just listen to how the Spirit's going to speak to you through them. If you're not married, find a friend that you trust has enough humility (laughs) that they'll tell you the truth. They'll love you enough for that. If you were here the night of that service, I want you to go back and pull that book out. And I don't know what God wants you to do. Here's what I'm doing. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe you'll do this as well. I'm, I'm picking out two areas of pride and asking God how, how he's going, how he wants to deal with me in them. Now, I already had one, uh, one incident this week that I really, I don't like. That's a result of God trying to do that in my life. So just, ex- just understand, if you're going to go down this road of desiring God to grow you when it comes to humility, it's going to hurt. It's going to entail risks. And you're going to roll the dice and go to somebody and say this and risk losing their approval. Risk losing them thinking well of you. And I'm of the opinion that that's unavoidable if we're serious about humility. So just take two of those and ask God, say, what do you you want me to do? And then just leave the ball in his court. Listen, if you say, if you, anytime you tell God that you want to be more like Jesus Christ, he'll respond. I guarantee you, he will respond. He will begin to speak into your life in that area. And I, I would say this, just as a body, that we might begin to pray. God, I pray that as a church, you'd begin to strip away our pride so that we can all do hard things that will make much more of Jesus Christ than has ever been made of him here, that will be concerned much more about other people than any of us have ever been concerned about other people, and will move each of ourselves further and further back so that God gets the glory and we help each other. Let's pray together. Do your work, Lord, of grace. Start in me. Continue what you have done. And I pray for us as a body that pride would become less and less, not just evident, but less and less real. That humility would be increasingly something that we aspire to, pray for, um, take hard steps on behalf of, and that this would be a church that would be marked by the grace that makes much of you, much of others, and less of ourselves in Jesus' name.